you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com, the ChrisVossShow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to, uh, if you want to see the video version of this uh, interview, you can go to YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Voss. Make sure you hit that bell notification button so you get all the notifications of all the cool videos and podcasts we do. Or you can go to the CVPN or Chris Voss Podcast Network to see online podcasts that we do. And you can uh, refer it to your friends, neighbors, relatives, get everybody involved, listen and watching the show because what else can you do? It's a quarantine land. So there you are. Uh, today we have a most excellent guest in his extraordinary new book that he's got out called Madman Theory. Trump takes on the world. Uh, Jim Shuto is with us today. He is CNN's chief national security correspondent and anchor of CNN Newsroom. After more than two decades as a foreign correspondent stationed in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, he returned to Washington to cover the Defense Department, the State Department, and intelligence intelligence agencies for cnn i i always think of that as being like a oxymoron the intelligence agencies but you know there you go uh his work has earned him emmy awards the george polk award the edward r murrow award and the miriam smith memorial award for excellence in presidential coverage he's a graduate of yale and a fulbright fellow he lives in washington dc with his wife gloria rivera who is a crisis communications professional and journalist for abc news and their three children welcome to the show how you doing jim i'm great i've been looking forward to this thanks so much for having me awesome sauce so you've got this new book out on shelves where can people uh go pick it up and of course find you on the interwebs i uh, Amazon is the easiest, uh, or, or your local bookstore should, should be there, um, and uh, it'd be an honor if you take the time, and I, you could always reach out and send me feedback on, on Twitter. There you go. And you're on weekdays on CNN, too, as well, in the morning, right? right. 9 to 11 Eastern, every day. Yeah. Get the plug in there. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Uh, you've written this book. You've written several great books that people should check out. Uh, give us an overview of what this book is about and what made you want to write it. So big picture, this is, a, this is a deep dive on four years of America first, right? What does Trump mean for the world? We, we, we've heard a, a lot of criticism. We've heard a lot of defense of him. So I try to take an open mind, sit back, and talk only to people who work for Trump at, at the senior most level. I spoke only to Trump appointees at the very top and almost exclusively on the record because I, I didn't want this to be a book of blind quotes. I wanted it to be on-the-record analysis and, and was able to, to get that. It took some work, but I was able to convince people. And, uh, you know, that's what I tried, tried to do here is just, is just be fair and open-minded, but also, you know, measure him up against some hard metrics. You know, here's what he inherited, and here's what he's leaving after four years. Oh, so it means he's leaving after four years, so there's that. Oh, exactly. <laughs> you may have a second book, uh, you know, yeah. if he gets reelected. Uh, so you, you talk to everybody. You talk to uh, people that uh, maybe were fired by him and got on his bad side, and then people that are still on his good side? That's exactly right. You, you know, and, and all folks who, who accepted the job he appointed and, and worked 
to their best of their abilities right for him. But I, but I speak to Peter Navarro, right? Still in the administration, very much a public defender of the president, really with a with a purview beyond trade now, right? I mean, this is a guy who's even delving into the debate over uh, COVID treatments, right? Uh, Steve Bannon, kind of a a thinker from behind the scenes, but, but also others who serve. H.R. Uh, McMaster was a national security advisor. Joseph Yun was his chief North Korea negotiator. Fiona Hill, of course, is chief Russia advisor and others in the Defense Department. Um, just to get the broadest view possible. And, you know, and a lot of folks ask me, okay, what's the madman theory? You know, how did you arrive there? And, and the way I got there was this. And I'm sure, Chris, you've heard this, you know, for years from the president or his loyalists. You know, they'll always say the president is a disruptor and he keeps everybody off balance. And he, he swoops in at the end with a with an outrageous uh, concession or an outrageous demand. You know, here's the art of the deal, right? But he wins out. He's got a strategy. He makes it happen. Now, as I covered him as a president with that kind of strategy in mind, it harkened back to me the madman theory that Nixon famously used or tried to use. You know, and I, this is where I start the book. In, in height of the Vietnam War, Nixon instructs Kissinger to communicate in no uncertain terms to the North Vietnamese, Nixon is just mad enough to order a nuclear strike. Almost in a, in a sense of, man, the, the old man, I don't know what he's going to do, but he's just mad enough to do it. And, and the idea was that would scare the North Vietnamese into concessions uh, to give the U.S. a more favorable exit from the war. Now, the fact is, it failed. We know how the war ended. But, but Nixon owned it. Uh, it's in H.R. Haldeman's memoirs, described as the madman theory, as a way to approach geopolitics. So 50 years later, we have a president come in with his own version of it, although Trump's is different in a couple of ways. One is this, uh, just as likely to use it against allies as adversaries. Look at our relationships with NATO allies or with South Korea, you know, threatening to yank U.S. troops unless they pay more money, or, or Canada, who the president declared a national security threat, right, to, to impose post steel tariffs on them, and the president willing to unleash it on his own advisors. I, I've got a whole bunch of stories in the book about how the president undermined them, contradicted them, reversed U.S. policy in a moment like that. So that, that's Trump's madman. Uh, and then what I try to do in the book is test it out, see how it worked, if it worked. Yeah, if, if if the results maybe he won on the side. You know, it's interesting you bring this up. When when Nixon was doing that, was he in the depths of Watergate? It was before Watergate, but okay. it was in the depths of a crisis, right? I mean, it was yeah. a war for the U.S. that was not going Vietnam. Well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if he did it as a diversionary tactic. I didn't got a chance to read up it. And, you know, I just noticed here in pulling up the Madman Theory on Wiki, uh, in 1517, Nicola and Nicola Machiavelli had argued that sometimes a very wise thing to simulate madness. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're, I don't know. I, I, I haven't heard that he has. And, and given his reading habits, I doubt that Trump has read Machiavelli. But, but <laughs> there is some, uh, you know, that's the idea. There's uh, some braggadocio in there, you know, from Trump and others saying, I, I know how to do this. You know, I got trust my gut here. I know when to scare people into thinking I'm crazy. The trouble is when you see it play out, it's not often or ever really connected to a contiguous broader strategy. It's, it's kind of the whims of him in the moment and thinking that he just knows better. And then sometimes also changing his mind in the moment as well. So in some of the interviews, what were some of the 
kind of uh, you know far edges of both sides that you you got that what were some what were some of the standout interviews I guess that that made you go okay uh, let's see I'm going to start in the loyalist category if I can <laughs> for a moment I'm going to start with Peter Navarro because he's a true believer right and I gave I gave the true believers a chance to explain their view of all this right and and one thing about the world of Trump is that what you or I or others might see as folly, uh, his loyalists see as wisdom, right? They're like, he has a plan. You know, this whole three-dimensional chess idea. Now, Navarro talks about that. Um, Navarro uh, will say not only that the president um, is thinking harder and better than, than we realize, but he also reflects the president's views. I'll give you an example. You know, the president has raised, question, raised questions about whether our alliances mean anything or whether our allies are truly our allies, right? He takes shots at Germany, takes shots at the French. Um, he, you know, takes shot at Canada, shots at Canada and Mexico. And if you think that is just in the moment, sort of, you know, I'm just trying to gain some leverage in this particular negotiation, it really isn't. Because when you dig down deeper, he and his loyalists really question whether those people, those countries are our allies. I, I had this exchange with Peter Navarro, and I said, well, what about Canada? You know, they, they, you know, as he was questioning various alliances, you know, the U.S. with Europe, you know, how loyal are they really to us? And I said, well, what about Canada? I mean, come on, our neighbors, longest peaceful border in the world. And he's like, are they really our allies? And I said, well, I don't know, bled, bled on the beaches of Normandy, you know, their tip of the spear in Afghanistan, and I've been there and I've seen them, and they died there um, much more so than many of America's other allies, Vietnam, et cetera. Uh, and he said, well, did they really do that for us or for their own interests? And I said, well, shared interest, right? I mean, the democracies were on the same side. Like, I'm not so sure about that. And I was like, Canada? I tell wow. that story to my Canadian friends, and they're, they're like, really? I mean, this is, this is the viewpoint um, that you get from them. So, so when the president's saying, tweeting this kind of stuff, he's tweeting it from the heart, you know? This is the way he views the world. It's a pretty remarkable way. I mean, I use it, you know, there are better words than remarkable. Mind-blowing might, uh, might be the better one. You know, I always, I always joke with my Canadian friends because I love my Canadian friends. They're, they're just such wonderful people. I, mean, I don't know what's wrong with us. But I always joke that we're like the drunken brother. We're the Billy Carter of, of you know, we're just running around there. I'm like, hey, man, we're wrecking everything. And they're just like, oh, God, we have to deal with these people live next door to them. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. You, you bring up the one point, and I was trying to find out before the show who, who the originator of this, because it's been kicked around a few times. But a lot of people, I think, I think it might have been Steve Smith that said it first, um, but basically they made the point that, that Trump, everyone thinks Trump's playing three-dimensional chess, like with Putin and stuff, but really Trump's just sitting there eating the checkers. And <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. I remember Nixon went through the period, too, where, where uh, he was drinking so much and wandering the halls of the White House that they had to tell him to stand. They, they had to tell the nuclear launchers to stand down if he called in a strike on, on Cambodia. And one of the things I saw you brought up in an interview was talking about how much confusion this, this does to the intelligence agencies and, you know, all the, the levels of government that have to respond, that have to deal with, you know, if he says something horrible about some country or some leader, you know, some ambassadors got to go run out there and go, well... You know, yeah, I mean, and even have to hem in his worst impulses, you know, uh, evocative of that, you know, Nixon in, in the latter stages of Watergate, when the military was, you know, pulling back 
his his military authorities. I, I tell the story about how at the worst point, uh, the tensions between the U.S. and North Korea, the, the Pentagon hesitated to give him military options because they were afraid that he was going to use them. Mm. Uh, and U.S. diplomats were communicating to their North Korean counterparts, you know, wow. to North Korea, that the president was unpredictable and they didn't know what he was going to do next, not as part of a grand strategy, Nixon style, but out of genuine concern that the two countries were on a path to war and they didn't want there to be misunderstanding. Um, you remember the concept, concept around the time of a bloody nose strike, you know, some sort of limited military engagement that would push North Korea to the negotiating table. No one in the Pentagon believed such a thing existed because their analysis was that North Korea would view a limited strike as just the first salvo of a decapitation strike. And then in response, rain down hell on Seoul, which they have the capability of doing. They got hundreds of artillery pieces, very powerful conventional weapons, but also chemical weapons and more. Uh, the, U the U.S. estimates, intel estimates of what a limited uh, strike, uh, what the death toll of that would be, was in the tens of thousands. So in the midst of that, the president's senior most advisors did not trust his judgment and, and therefore sought to hem in how far he could go. Yeah, and even our soldiers, which are there. I, I think I heard even higher than that, but maybe I was thinking of the numbers of the soldiers that are there. I think there's 36,000 or 40 or 60 some some uh, soldiers there. And and yeah, sometimes I, when I watch Trump, you know, you, you have a deep understanding of how the intelligence agencies, the State Department, everything works. I have kind of a layman's uh, amateur sort of thing. But, you know, watching it, reading books, understanding, um, I, I it, it just must drive them up the walls, like just about every time he tweets, because, you know, they have to balance so many different things. In fact, uh, one thing... Um, was the uh, was the I think it was the Iran strike where he was going to dump on 150 people I think it was, and they had brought the the options to him and they put this crazy one in there because he thought they thought it was too crazy and he went for it if you remember that story. Uh, talking about maybe the killing of Qasem Soleimani right too is yeah opposed to that level which was a which was a a strike. Listen, Qasem Soleimani is a bad guy, uh, no question, uh, responsible. You know, for supplying bombs that killed 600 service members in Iraq. Mm -hmm. I covered some of those attacks when I was there as a reporter. Um, I think there was some surprise in the Pentagon when, when he took that sh strike as an option and concern about what the carry-on effects were. Um, Iran did strike back, injured a lot of U.S. forces. Uh, it did not start a war, almost luckily, right? Uh, not because mm -hmm. there was any grand discussion uh, of that. I think I, from what I saw and, and, and saw reported, and you would know more than I would, uh, a lot of those soldiers uh, suffered massive amounts of brain damage and probably permanent. Um, and, and I think maybe with George Bush or, well, uh, Dick Cheney, excuse me, President Dick Cheney, um, we would have had a, another war there. I don't know if Obama would have went to war with Iran. He seemed to, well, during his area, a lot of people didn't want to have war. Um, so it's really interesting in your book. You've You've got this whole uh, picture that you paint with all the interviews and it's going to be, I'm, I'm going to be excited to finish it because uh, all the different interviews of the different perceptions of people, um, you know, Mary Trump's book is a really interesting book. And she talks about how he's a scared little kid. He's unimaginative. He's uneducated. Uh, McMaster, the same has said the same thing. And, and a lot of different other people, John Bolton, of course, was not, uh, was not that excited by him. In fact, I think John Bolton also did the same thing. He, he kind of kept close to the vest some of the different options and was really careful at what he pushed and even surprised at some of the things he did from push. But sometimes I wonder how much of it is 
you know, this is a guy who, uh, who, you know, he's a small guy running out of his office, r- running an image sort of business. Um, and suddenly he's thrown into uh, this whole world that's way bigger than, than what he can even deal with or imagine. We, you know, we've got a malignant narcissist, in my opinion, in many people's opinion. Um, and so a lot of what his planning was, and I don't know if Bannon talked about this, but, you know, him and Bannon planned pretty much to just throw grenades. And, you know, Trump's notorious for saying, hey, you want to see something fun? Uh, you know, he'll make a crazy tweet and watch the world go to hell. And people are just like, holy crap, man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the crazy like a fox or you're just eating the checkers or what Mary Trump talks about is a lot of the a lot of the craziness at, at keeping a fee going, you know, keeping a keeping, you know, tons of crazy stuff, throwing, throwing hand grenades, no one figures out that you don't have, you know, you just have a pea shooter, you don't have a gun. Your enemies just go, man, he's got a lot of grenades. Um, and it keeps everybody moving, but they don't figure out that you're an imposter, you're a failure, you're a fake, you don't know what you're doing. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's really interesting to, to wonder if, if there really is a Wizard of Oz behind the madman or there's just a madman behind the madman. In practice, you know, teacher, I, I asked everybody I interviewed for this book, well, do you have any questions about his mental sharpness? The answer to that question is no. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they don't think he's insane. But the way he operates is the way he operates, right? And he, mm-hmm. it is, uh, he does not read. He is not just uh, skeptical of information, he's dismissive of it. And not just advice and analysis, but, but, but hard information, hard data, uh, if it's either doesn't fit his worldview or his view of a particular thing or is inconvenient to him. Look at the pandemic, right? Deaths rising, cases rising. That can't be true. Just raise questions about it because I don't want to deal with it. You know, I, I, speak, I spoke in the book to Susan Gordon, who was the, the, the second senior most intelligence official in the country, and she was going to be the director of national intelligence. He pushed her out you know, insufficiently loyal to him uh, was a read. But she, she briefed him numerous times and described how, okay, you know, you have the right of the commander-in-chief to disagree with my opinion, uh, analysis of things. But when you dismiss facts, that's another thing. You know, it's, you know, she says in the book, you know, there are times we know things, right? I can show you the photos of this happening, or we know the data that this is happening. The president, even then, would reject it out of either denial because it's inconvenient for him or out of this supreme overconfidence that she describes in himself. He knows better, not just his judgment, uh, but his sense and view of the world. Um, and that is a, you know, th- that is a combination of qualities that creates enormous dangers, right? If you have a, if you have a head of state that's making decisions without the best information available to him, but also, even when he has the best information, not believing it, it uh, it sets you up for some disastrous decisions. Some of which we've seen play out. Most definitely. Um, did Did you see uh, when people when you did your interviews? Did Did anybody talk about his narcissism about uh, in being around that sort of mindset that he has? Yes. Uh, so the overconfidence, um, but the self dealing, yeah. the mixing of national and personal interests. Uh, I mean, Ukraine is an obvious example of that. You know, here is, you know, this is this is a national security partnership the U.S. has with Ukraine. It's an ally at war with Russia that he felt no 
you know, guilt about taking their, their military aid away to squeeze a, a political opponent here at home. And that's not that's not a, a bug. That's a feature of the way he approaches things, right? Uh, I mean, think of Bolton's book, uh, the, the president saying to China, buy some agricultural products in swing states to help me win the election, right? Um, uh, and, and listen, I, I have to say, Russia, his relationship with Russia throughout, because, you know, I asked everyone in this book to explain his inexplicable deference to Russia, because that's arguably the most consistent thing about his foreign policy. That's where he's been most level, his dealings with Russia. And the best answer they came up with is he has admiration for Putin, envy of his power, a shared worldview, kind of a zero-sum worldview that we're all dirty players in a dirty game, but also that he calculates it's beneficial to him. It is not coincidence that in 2016, Russia interfered in the election to help him, and he didn't protest, right, as candidate or president. In fact, for four years, he poo-pooed that idea, questioned that it ever happened. You read the intel briefing just last week. Russia is interfering again to help him, and he is not calling them out. Does a president who's willing to undermine the Postal Service to uh, obstruct mail-in voting because he perceives that as you know, affecting his political portions, does the potential benefit of foreign interference uh, calculate, you know, factor into his calculus on whether he stands up to Russia? you know, fitting with the way he approaches his world, that's not an enormous leap to make. So it might be that he's not necessarily a madman. He appears to be on the outside from us, but he actually has, you know, I I think even the most crazy people are like Hitler, Stalin, uh, Mussolini had like a certain box of patterns that they, they would go to and there was safety in that. And that's their, that's their little Rubik's cube that they spin. Uh, so maybe it's possible that he's really not a madman. He just, he just, he, he's smart enough to know what his little, what his little buttons are to push. And, and it all, it's all about him. Maybe. It is. Well, so here's the thing, you know, and to be clear, I'm not accusing him of being a madman. Sure. It's, it's a way to describe his slipshod approach to the world, unpredictable approach to the world, both our friends uh, and foes and, and his own most senior advisors, um, he claims to have a wisdom attached to that, a strategy, the three-dimensional chess. But in practice, one, the people who work for him say, no, he doesn't have a strategy. In fact, many of his decisions contradict stated U.S. national security priorities, um, one. But two, also, you, you know, he makes these decisions on the fly and then when you look at the results of them, it's not connected to, to, to an end game. I mean, look at North Korea. You know, for a year, it was fire and fury. And for three years, it was a love affair. After four years, North Korea has more, not fewer, nuclear weapons. It's got a more, not less advanced ballistic missile program. It, it failed on both fronts. You know, the sort of scary madman with the nuclear button and the friendly madman, it failed. So, um if if he could point to successes and say, look, I was smarter than all of them. I won on all three dimensions of this chessboard. But when you look at that chessboard, by and large, the strategy, well, the approach, let's call it that, 
because uh, his own advisors say there wasn't really a strategy to it, the approach failed. And, and you know, recently, what I've been looking at is if, if the Trump era does end here at the, in uh, January, November, um, is, is what historians going to look back on? Would Hong Kong have fallen under a normal U.S. president or Obama or Bush or whatever? I mean, Hong Kong is definitely just yeah. crumpling to, um, to uh, China. And I'm starting to wonder, like, one of the things I worry about is that China, Russia, or Iran – are going to go, even if Biden wins the election, they're going to go, you know what? We got a few more months of crazy boy that we can get away with some stuff. Let's pull some stuff. Yeah. And, um, uh, it's, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting if, if any weird stuff really goes on, uh, to that effect, but you're right. Uh, we haven't gotten any better. Um, you know, we, we had, uh, I'm so glad you brought up Hong Kong by the way, cause it can't be lost in all this. It's, it's a loss for the people of Hong Kong. And it, it's personal for me because I lived there for five years. Uh, I, I was there for the handover in 1997, uh, one of the first big stories I covered overseas. I've got a lot of friends there. And Hong Kong is this, is, was this kind of unusual thing, right? A, a city within the bounds of China, but that had freedom, a free press, you know, rule of law. It's over, you know. Yeah. And it's a test of this idea that Trump, you know, his claim is the world respects us again. Right. Well, if that were true, why did China feel they can get away with that in the midst of, you know, the Trump administration ratcheting up pressure? If Putin respects us again, why has Russia become more, not less aggressive over the last four years in Ukraine in terms of election interference here, in terms of challenging U.S. military aircraft uh, and, and ships around the world? It, you know, even our NATO ally, putatively, uh, Turkish President Erdogan, I mean, he thumbs his nose at the U.S. by buying under Trump, the U.S. under Trump, by buying yeah. the missile system. So, yeah. again, when you look at the record, the approach is failing virtually across the board. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I look at Hong Kong like they would not have been able to pull. They wouldn't have pulled off what they're pulling off. Um and, uh, you know, we recently saw, I believe, the editor of uh, well, the Apple yep. News editor arrested and taken out. I mean, that's just extraordinary to see. And and certainly China's flexing her muscle. I I, I think, uh, and I, I I just take this from the news that I gather, but it looks like when we come out of this, whether it's with Biden or Trump re-election, uh, what we will have after four years is the rise in power of Russia and China and probably Iran from what they do with the uh, with their uh, folks. Um, you know, we, we had uh, Anders Asland who, who uh, came on and talked about Iran and Russia and Putin recently. Uh, and then you interviewed Fiona Hill, who I know has written a lot of books about Putin. Um, and this guy, this guy is a sharp dude. I mean, Putin's, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to play chess or checkers with him. <laughs> well, this, you know, his his top advisors say, and this is this is a shocking thing to hear, but but that not only does Trump admire Putin, but but Putin knows it and seeks to take advantage of it. Intel officials described to me how they believe that Putin has been and is running a massive influence operation. You know that that's a that's a you know a phrase from the world of espionage, but you know it's an operation where you try to influence someone to think more like you and to influence their decisions to be more in your favor. But that Putin has been doing that on Trump with some success. And they will cite examples of that success. They say that 
one of Trump's big sources for his hostility to European leaders, I'm talking about Western European leaders, our friends, like Angela Merkel, is Vladimir Putin. And that has an effect then on decisions the president makes, like pulling U.S. troops uh, out of, or a portion of U.S. troops out of Europe as a kind of, you know, finger in the eye to Angela Merkel. Um, Putin knows Trump admires him and plays him. You know, there's this, there's a paper tiger aspect to Trump's leadership, all this bluster, all this supposed strength. But when you see who played whom in North Korea, right, after four years of everything, if North Korea advanced its nuclear program, you know, the U.S. got played. You know, if Russia is more aggressive on virtually every front, who got played in that relationship? Trump claims to be the winner, but it doesn't, hasn't played that way out on the world, world stage. And his own advisors described that. Uh, describe that phenomenon. Did you uh, did you look at Hitler, Mussolini, or Stalin in their authoritarian ways to see if maybe they also there were emblances of the madman theory with those gentlemen? I Why did, am I calling them gentlemen? Jesus. But but you mentioned Fiona Hill. So here's the student yeah. of Russia, and what she said to me in terms of describing his approach is is the hyper personalization of the presidency under Trump. It's all about him. The policy is him and, and he is the policy. And she said that, you know, remarkably, even Putinism involves more delegation of authority than Trumpism. That, that in the Kremlin, there's at least some kind of structure. Trust me, it's an authoritarian country. I'm not saying it's any, you know, by any means democratic, but there is some spreading around of the decision making. Under Trump, it's gone in the opposite direction. So here's Trump's former top Russia advisor saying he's almost more Putin than Putin, right, in terms of the way he runs the government, personalizes the government yeah. around him. And he's done it more so over his four years because one by one he's exiled uh, anyone who's willing to stand up to him. Yeah, Putin's, uh, his management team is extraordinary. They have like four levels and they even, he even plays them against each other. And, they, and, 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 and he has it built just really strategically so that, so that he can retain power and that it makes it really hard for a coup or something to come against him like you would see in Egypt uh, where the military just rises up and takes over. Um, and uh, But with Trump, I mean, you see a lot, like a lot of it, I, I come back to with him being that, that child that Fred, that Fred Trump built. And, and then I see the entrepreneur, because I've been an entrepreneur all my life since I was 18. I know what it's like to run small companies. And, you know, I've had a few hundred employees, but, but still – you, you operate in a little bit of a bubble. I mean, operating a small business and the U.S. government with, you know, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of employees, I mean, that's a, that's a whole different ballgame. And you're dealing with, you know, mercenaries and, and uh, people who really kill, torture, meme. You know, I, I didn't fortunately have to deal with that in the mortgage business, <laughs> you know, on weekends maybe, on weekends, you know. Uh, but, uh but, you know, and, and so I wonder how much that goes. And, then, of course, the narcissism plays into it. If it wasn't for that, you know, the malignant narcissism, the studies that you've seen where, you know, you think that you're impervious and the whole world revolves around you. In fact, it's really interesting, the lack of empathy and everything else. I knew narcissism, uh, people that were very much like Trump, uh, narcissists and uh, pathological liars. So I, I knew exactly what we're getting into with that. I was crying on <laughs> Election Day. Um did you see did you see other comparisons with Mussolini, Stalin or Hitler or were they maybe more stable or I don't know what would you think? 
Well, here's the thing, another aspect, is that, you know, we hear this comparison every day, Trump is authoritarian, right? Um, Trump certainly envies authoritarian power. We see that in Putin. He also views institutions in this country as his playthings, right? You know, the, the, the attorney general treats him like his personal lawyer, right? Uh, the, you know, th- that um, these institutions that are meant to serve the country, he sees as serving himself, right? I mean, he just got, he just got the EPA to change showerhead regulations, right? So it has a stronger shower flow because he thinks they don't have a strong enough shower flow. I mean, it's like, you know, you'd have to, in a novel, you'd be pretty proud of yourself if you made that up as a detail. Maybe the White House has bad showerheads or something. (laughs) uh, It's incredible. Um, But you can make a pretty good case that he's a bad authoritarian, right? Yeah. Lays it out. You know, it's interesting with like this, this uh, post office stuff. He, you know, he says in so many words, I don't want the post office to get the money because if they get the money, then they will be able to process a big influx of mail-in voting. And, and I don't want that to happen. I mean, he says it he says inside the, out loud, right? Yeah, I mean, out loud. A clever authoritarian would, you know, smile while behind the scenes he is making that happening happen. I mean, even with Ukraine, right, he couldn't make it happen. It got, I mean, he delayed it for a bit, but it was exposed ultimately. He's, so you don't want to, on the one hand, you don't want to underplay the damaging moves that he's making in terms of our institutions, but you don't want to overplay his, either his strategy, (laughs) right, or his brilliance in in carrying it out, you know? Yeah, and I think all of our, I think all of our enemies have figured it out where they they just know that there's there's a lot of the bravado there and buffoonery and they, they just know how he is. I mean, uh at least it's I think they do. Book, actually from a senior intel official that, that they say that our adversaries know we don't know the next play was the phrasing. That they know that this is a seat of the pants kind of decision maker. Um that he's making these kinds of moves and reversals, et cetera, without a big plan or strategy. And, and the other side knows that and, and seeks to take advantage of it. Sorry to interrupt you, but the thought just occurred to me. No, that, that's great. Uh, in fact, and they also know that he's just, he's just operating on a national scale. He has no interest for international, the future of America's, uh, you know, presence in the world. What, what our interest is, is continuing democracy. Um, I mean, you, you, I mean, you bring up really good points. He, it's all, it's all about him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We're all his playthings, and we're all, you know, we can live and die by him and the coronavirus now. So there's that. Yeah, he's ultimately transparent on so many of these things, for better or for worse, right? For all of us, but you can see, you can see, it's not not some sort of secret diabolical plan, right? It's it's uh, playing out before our eyes. I mean, the trouble is, he he takes advantage of the fact that there are just so many storylines at once. It's hard to keep track. Yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, you look at Putin, and Putin you'll never see coming. Like any any good person I've ever met who's a good salesman or is is is, is good at strategy, you, you're not going to see them coming until they're standing behind you and the knife's in your back, you know, or in Putin's thing, you know, you're you're falling off your balcony <laughs> accidentally yeah. out your window. Um, you know, and uh, 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 Chairman Xi of uh, – uh, China, I think the same way. I mean, I wouldn't want to be hanging around with those guys because I'm just like, I'm not going to see it. Like, you know, I'm not going to see the one that gets me. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, and, and meanwhile, he's just out blathering around like the village idiot going, but I have a grand thing. And, and um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what, what comes of this and, of course, what we're going to unearth. I mean, every president that we have after they leave office, yeah. we find, you know, we will, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, especially with like Nixon. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what the what the final story is going to be or, you know, how we come out of it. I, I wouldn't want to be Biden right now if they get reelected. I mean, I would, but maybe I wouldn't want to be him. Um, the digging out that he's going to have to do, the cleaning up. And then somehow he's got to come in strong and go, hey, we're America. We're back. Don't screw with us. And uh, I think a lot of I think China and Russia and Iran see us in a weakened condition. I mean, we really look like a wounded animal with yeah. what's going on with the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So I write about that, that China, you know, famously, you know, China's intention is to replace the U.S. as the dominant world power, dominant world economy. I mean, they speak about it openly. And their old goal used to, to be to do that by 2049, 100-year anniversary of the founding the Communist, Chinese Communist Party. But then now they speak about it as, as a more immediate prospect in the 2030s, maybe. And that is uh, not in spite of Trump, but in part because of Trump, because they see a dissolution of American soft power abroad. You know, the American system, listen, I'm, trust me, I'm not advertising the Chinese system and that they are incarcerating a million Muslims in the Northwest. It's an authoritarian regime. But in terms of this battle of kind of, you know, systems and ideas and geopolitics, you know, our problems at home, even the financial problems, you know, financial crisis, et cetera, the Iraq invasion, you know, these kinds of things from their perception, you know, gives them an upper hand or at least a way to bring us down. You know, and then by bringing us down, they get closer to the top, which has always been their goal. Russia looks at it in a similar way. You know, I looked at the Uyghur situation in China, and uh, which are basically concentration camps. And, and, I, and I've often wondered, would this, would this have happened any, under any other presidency or be allowed under any other presidency? And then to hear him come out in, in one of his discussions, I think it was in the Bolton book, he's just like... Uh, yeah, whatever. You guys can do that as long as you help me out, uh, you know, with my, you know, buying some stuff so I can get reelected. Yep. Yep. I mean, that was, it is. It's a accepting, dismissing uh, 21st century concentration camp. You know, it, uh, it's remarkable. Uh, and a calculation again, right? You know, the, the, the president, you hear this consistently in this book, that the president values his personal relationship with his leaders overall else, imagining uh, that he can work some sort of magic in those relationships to change, to change the situation. And I mean, look at, look at how it turned out with Kim, Kim Jong-un. It, it doesn't, you know, countries have, uh, you know, no permanent friends, only permanent interests, right? You know, regardless of how charming you imagine yourself to be. Um, you know, even I tell a story in the book about how the, you know, the president doesn't like spying on our adversaries because in part he thinks it damages his personal relationships with those leaders that's a problem because going back to george washington right spies are how you gain advantage in conflict it's it's a necessary part of our national security does the man-man theory uh in your book um talk about um uh mental decline um which there's some 
theory that he's maybe in some mental decline of of age or frontal lobal frontal uh, frontal uh, I forget what it's called, but you know what I mean. Uh, is is that in there anywhere or in some of your thinking? Well, I don't I don't try to to either psychoanalyze or, or make a medical diagnosis. I, I think you know with him the sharpest trump is still a damaging one when it comes to his worldview, right? Even with all his faculties in place, because he has such a frankly un-American view of the world, right? And the country's place in it. One of the chapters is called The End of American Exceptionalism, right? Because he doesn't see us... Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to hold the U.S. up as, as perfect by any means, but I do believe we're better than China and Russia and that our system has something that it stands for. The president doesn't believe in that and cuts mm-hmm. that down. Um, and the president also doesn't operate in a way that uh, is in line with what we've built as a country or in our relations with the world. You know, that, you know, we've designed it so that our presidents don't have personal financial interests in international relations, right? But this president does. And yeah. there's genuine concern among the people who work for him that that helped drive his decisions to some degree, a Trump Tower Moscow or real estate projects in Turkey, right? That that's part of the way he's thinking. It's, it's why, for instance, no one was surprised when there was money for an FBI, new FBI headquarters in the stimulus and it was taken out because it seemed the president calculated if you have a new FBI headquarters across from his hotel, it might help the property values. I mean, it's, you know, that sounds like an outrageous claim to make, but when you look at the big picture of Trump's decision-making, you know, it's 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 in the public record that often his personal interests affect national security interests. You know, I asked Eddie Glaude Jr. when he came on, I, I said, did we have to go through to this low? Did we have to hit this bottom to find out how bad, you know, how much we trusted the presidency, how much we, how much we, uh, you know, do we, do we have to hit this bottom between, you know, our issues with racism that we have? Um, I mean, the coronavirus and Trump have just exposed, like, every sort of uh, crevice that we had into a giant canyon. Um, I, I just wonder if history's not going to look that, that we had to hit this rock bottom. We had to go to the wall for democracy, and, and hopefully we pull back. You hope so, because this country has turned things around before. Uh, you know, my worry, and I, I'm an optimist by, by nature, um, and there are so many good people in this country. You and I know them. We meet them, um, and people who truly believe in the mission. And I met, the, I met them throughout government uh, writing this book and in, in my day job. You know, the concern is structurally. Like, what are the structural barriers to solving these problems? You know, Congress compromises a dirty word on the Hill now because – it doesn't suit either party's political fortunes in many districts, right? Because of gerrymandering, a whole host of things. You know, the, the death of the, the moderate. If you can't, if you can't make compromises, you can't make real legislation. I mean, the only legislation almost that gets passed these days is just spending money. It's like, okay, I'll write all my checks, you write all your checks. Right? You know, everybody's happy. That's not really a great victory. No one's really given up uh, that much. So, how can you can you solve? You know, the education crisis, can, can you solve these problems? It's a, you know, a lot of good stuff's happening at the local level, you know, state level and so on. But nationally, there are genuine questions about, you know, dysfunction in the system. Um, and, and that's the harder thing. You know, one election doesn't fix that, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's about two parties and the people working together over time and people giving something up, right? 
Yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, if if he gets replaced in November, um, it's definitely. I mean, there's there's a lot of pasting back to do. I mean, there's four years of pasting back that that Biden would have to do. And uh, I mean, are we? Do you think we're really perceived anymore as carrying the big stick in the world? You know, we used to have that the police officer stick that we used to you know fight for democracy and stuff. Do you think that's gone right now? It's damaged, right? I mean, you can see it. I mean, it's in some of this. Uh, I cited in the book. Uh, national international polling right about respect for the u.s uh, you know down across the world markedly except in a couple there are a couple countries that are acceptance acceptance one of which is israel but in general no um you hear it in in the comments of our allies right uh, in a macron or a merkel saying we can no longer rely on the u.s for european security you know it's it's heartbreaking because you built those relationships over years and you know like, like anything, trust and confidence takes a long time to build. It's easy to, easy to give it away. Um, so we got work to do to, to bring that back. And listen, one could imagine a, you know, uh, a putative anti-Trump, right? You know, who, who took many of the positions the president did, but did it in such a way that, that he built more of a coalition to do it, right? I mean, for instance, okay, stand up to Chinese trade malpractice, but do it with your allies, not against them. And the president did the latter, not the former, and probably had less success as a result. Um, that's the shame in it, right? Because, you know, some of the initial positions are not, you know, not unjustified. But, you know, you run it through the sort of Trump uh, meat grinder, right? And it comes out the other end and you know, it can often be a little ugly. I got a good question for you. Uh, in any of your interviews, did you find that the, him being impeached slighted him even more to to make him go for the madman sort of theory or, or drive him to more yeah. extremes? This idea that he learned a lesson, right? I mean, it was a two <laughs> The lesson he learned is, uh, you know, smoke out, you know, anyone who was against me, right? Yeah. And he did one by one, almost like a mafia. It was like a watching a mafia movie in slow motion. All the guys go, you know, one by one by one. You know, Vinman, I covered that story a couple of weeks ago when he ultimately, you know, decided, you know, figured that he had no future in the military right after he was kind of drummed out. So, no, is the, is the answer. It doesn't seem, you know, he certainly wasn't chastened by it. By the way, re-election would, you know, reaffirm all these things and, and, and things that were half measures in the first term would become full measures, you know. Bolton talks about him pulling out of NATO, uh, you know, troops out of Afghanistan. Do, do you just pull the troops off the Korean Peninsula, let them deal with them themselves, you know, lose interest in North Korea, you know, just yeah. declare victory and move on. Yeah. I, I, Vinman, I hope there's something that Biden does with him or gets him reinstated yeah. or something there. There has to be some beautiful end to that story. There has to be some, <laughs> there just has to be. Uh, I've still got a copy of, you know, him saying right is right. And every now and then if I get a little depressed, I go watch that, that, that yeah. bit. And uh, so it's, it's pretty interesting. So um, anything more, Jim, we need to know about uh, the book, what's in it and everything else. I would just say this is that, you know, I, I started this as a, it's a journalistic enterprise. And I started with an open mind. I talked to people who knew him and worked with him uh, to give him an opportunity to, to criticize or to defend. And what I do at the end is just, Go to the record. Uh, the last chapter is before and after. Here's what he inherited in North Korea, Iran, elsewhere, and here's uh, where it is four years later. 
So, you know, folks who are listening to this, uh, you know, if you think I, you know, I, I've got a one-dimensional point of view of this, I mean, I certainly learned a lot. Uh, but but give it a read and then make your own judgments. And you could say, well, that, that's a win, uh, you know, or, or that's a loss. But if you look at the record, um, that's really the biggest indictment of his approach, right? Because it didn't move the dial in a positive direction on, on virtually all of these things. Um, and, and that's what you got to do. You know, we got to be able to look at it that way and then hopefully make adjustments either under him or under the next president. I think it's really good how you did the approach to the book where you tried to take a, a biased effect to it and you, you know, you interviewed everybody and, 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 and compiled those ideas to present them. I think that's really good to me in all this, in all the reading I've done of history there, we've always been this, this, uh, you know, this exceptional nation um, where we've, you know, tried to do the right thing, supported democracy, but then you look at our failures, uh, Reagan's Falklands, um, the, or not the, the Falklands, El Salvador, the slaughter in El Salvador, you know, all the different things that we do under the pretense of like, we're doing the right thing. And then, you know, we mow over some people and go, oops. <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see if the Trump, how it all, how it all plays out 10, five, 10 years from now. Cause that's when we really see it. And of course, then once we, we, uh, dig through whatever the burned ashes are in the basement of the White House. It's going on that way. So, Jim, give us a, a plug on where to find you on the interwebs and in your book, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you, Chris. Well, first of all, the book's The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. You can find it on Amazon, your, your local bookseller. Easy to Google that. Um, I, I'm at, at Jim Shuto on Twitter, and it's S-C-I-U-T-T-O. If you ever forget, it's just like prosciutto. Um, and, uh, and I'm on Instagram as well as Jim Shudo, and, and I do my best to respond to folks when they reach out and always happy to talk uh, and take your critiques uh, or your good words. And I'm always I hope we can keep up the conversation, too, Chris. I, I you know, I, I think it's great. It'll be interesting to see how it comes out. So everybody, check out uh, Jim's book, The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. It just came out, I think, August 11th. Mm-hmm. That's right. There you go. So just fresh right off the thing. It's got that new book smell. Uh, order yourself up one. You can uh, order up from. Uh, he's even got it on audiobook, so you can get the audiobook as well. Yes, I've uh, There you go. There you go. Uh, so thanks to my audience for tuning in and being here. Be sure to share this show with your friends, neighbors, relatives. Let everybody know they can go to thecvpn.com or chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com. See all our nine podcasts that we have over there. They can also go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss and see the video version of this. You're probably used to seeing Jim on CNN every day. So uh, you can see his wonderful face on the Chris Voss show now too as well. Uh, thanks to my for tuning in. Thanks to Jim. And we'll see you guys next time.